Welcome to Alger Assembly of God and welcome to a brand new sermon series. It's entitled Ruth. It's not my sister, uh, but it is about that short and powerful book in the Bible, the book of Ruth. It is a little book with a pretty big message. A little in that it is only four chapters. Those chapters total about 85 verses. So uh, let me issue, uh, let's try this again. I'm going to issue a challenge, all right? Well, we did this earlier in the year with our Psalm 119 series. That was a little bit of a challenge because it was 176 verses long. This entire book of Ruth is 85 verses. So I'm going to give you two challenges. Pick one. Challenge number one is read the entire book by next Sunday. 85 verses, you can do it. Challenge number two is easier and shorter, and that's read chapter one. We're going to get started. This is a little bit of an introduction. We're only looking at the first five verses today, so you have the the rest of the week to read the rest of the chapter. But this short book has a big and captivating message. It's, It's a beautiful book, and we're going to be exploring that. It's a story of love, but it's also a story of some pretty personal cost. The book of Ruth begins with death. It begins with despair, but it ends with joy and delight. How many of you like uh, stories or books that end on a good note, right? So this has a positive ending. But what we see is we're going to discover God works in and through and sometimes in spite of our decisions, many times our bad decisions. Let me ask a question, and I want to have this as a little bit of a responsive time. So if if this is you, raise your hand. How many of you in here, in person, watching, listening online, you have ever in your life made a bad decision? Hands in the air. Bunch of hands in the air. You're saying, yes, I hear that. I'm with you. I've been there. Now, if your hand was not in the air, bad decision, because you probably just lied. I would venture to say every single one of us, we've made a bad decision. Chances are we've made a whole host of them. I'll, I'll share with you one. I'm sure I've shared it at some point in time, uh, but probably one that sticks out to me was uh, shortly after God had brought us here as pastor, we were looking to sell our house and buy a house in the area. And we felt like God had brought us to a particular home that was for sale by owner. The owners were Christians, and not just Christians, but a pastor. I thought, wow, God is leading and guiding and directing us. Now, we were trying to sell our house, and and they agreed to give us some time to sell our house and purchase theirs. Unfortunately, they went back on their word a little bit and cut short the amount of time we had to sell our house. They said, we're going to list it with the realtor. Now, they were going to give us a discount by selling it without that realtor's commission, so the, the cost would have been less. We thought, God is leading us and guiding us to this house. But now they're changing their minds. We're going to list it with the realtor because you've not sold your house. And I remember exactly where I was when I got that phone call. And I remember the the wheels began to process in my mind. And I made what would turn out to be a not-so-great decision. 
I convinced Kim. I said, listen, we've had people look at our house. In fact, we've got buyer, uh, a particular buyer who's very interested, but they're only approved for a certain amount. We've already come down substantially on our house. We'd have to come down even more to agree to sell it to them. But I said, if we don't sell our house, we might lose this house. So the decision was, let's call our prospective buyer back and let's tell them we'll give in and we'll drop the price even more. That way we shore up the, the, the sale of our house so we could then shore up the purchase of this other house. I mean, I'm going to help God out, right? You ever said that? I'm going to help God out. I mean, nothing seems to be happening. It's, you know, we're going to have to give in. So we did. Called our, our buyers and said, hey, we, we want to we wanna help you out. We're going to drop our price to meet what you're able to pay. They said, great. Call the, the seller of the house back and say, now we've got a buyer. Will you sell it to us? They said, yes. And we began. We went through the paperwork for sale by owner and went through realtor attorney. Obviously, we signed paperwork and we do what you should do when you get ready to purchase a house, and that's have a home inspection. And they had disclosed nothing. There was nothing disclosed about the house, meaning it was perfect. And that's not exactly what the uh, inspector found. The inspector found something literally with every system of the house, electrical, plumbing. I mean, you name it, they found it. Every single room, every single system. And so as a result of what we found, we backed out of the deal based on the inspection. But unfortunately, these Christians, these pastors said no. And through the attorney said, we're not going to let you out of the deal because your contract says you can't do that. Your, your contract says you can have an inspection, but that's not a prerequisite. That will not let you get out of the deal. And sure enough, we looked at the fine print. And our real estate attorney who wrote this didn't include the right language. So now their lawyers are telling us we have to buy the house even though it did not pass inspection. So in the midst of those bad decisions, the end result was months of lawyers, prayers, paperwork, and God moving, ultimately to allow our house the sale of our house to fall through. It was only God. Our house needed to appraise for a certain value, and it appraised just slightly underneath it. And guess what? The, the other uh, uh, couple and the, the attorney, they wanted us to drop our house even more, forcing us to make that house sale go through to buy their house. We said no. We had to wait, allow our house to fall through, and that was a prerequisite to purchasing the other house. That then caused that one to officially fall through. And then it's even further months to then sell our house and then find a house. One bad decision done with a, a good heart and a good attitude. I'm going to help God out and let's just get this going. Let's sell this and buy this and get here and go. Caused months of heartache and difficulty. In the end, as you know, uh, we are here in the area, in the exact same area where Kim grew up and actually right across the street from her parents. It's been uh, quite a blessing. But that one decision, maybe your decision wasn't to do with the house, but 
Could be with a, a house, could be with a vehicle, could be with schooling, could be with a, a job, could be with a workplace. I mean, chances are you and I have made some bad decisions and we have faced some challenges and heartache as a result. So that's a little bit of what we see the beginning here of the book of Ruth. We're entitling this Bad Decisions. As we kick off the book, we're looking at bad decisions. So these first five verses, that's where we're going. It's going to give us the background and introduction to where we're at. So in the Word of God, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Let's stop right there. This book of Ruth, it is the eighth book of the Bible. So think with me. Old Testament, we start with the book of Genesis, right? Creation, God creating the world, Adam and Eve and Noah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of those individuals here at the beginning in Genesis. Exodus, God's people are in captivity in Egypt. God brings them out. Leviticus, God gives them laws and, and rules to help govern their life and, and base it upon God. Numbers, they're counted and, and uh, the beginning of preparations of Numbers and Deuteronomy preparing for the promised land. Joshua. Joshua is the leader that God uses to bring them into the promised land. And then judges, well, judges, I'm going to sum up for you with four words. Are you ready? Write it down. Sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. Those four words form the cycle of sin in the book of Judges. See, sin. God's people turn their backs on God and follow their own laws, their own rules, or some of the surrounding nations. So as a result of their sin, God gives them over. God releases his hand of blessing and provision and protection and allows them to be oppressed by some of the neighboring lands. As a result of the oppression, what happens in the cycle? They repent. They, they turn back to God. God, we're sorry. Would you help us? And as a result of calling out on God, what happens? God hears them, answers their prayer with a deliverer, deliverance. Now, we hear the word judge, and we think of Judge Judy. We think about the Supreme Court. This is not a judge with a gavel and a long white wig. This is a judge or a deliverer. Men and women that God raises up to deliver the people of Israel. So uh, think of individuals like Gideon, Deborah, Jephthah, Ehud, Samson. Some you're familiar with, some maybe not so, but God raises up these judges, and it's this cycle. They sin, they're oppressed, they repent, God delivers them. There's peace in the land, and they turn their back on God again, so they sin, they're oppressed, they repent, and God delivers them. That's the book of Judges right before the book of Ruth. And so verse 1 says it's in the days when the judges ruled. The book of Ruth could probably be dropped right inside of the book of Judges, time period-wise. Because following Ruth then is First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's the account of the kings who ruled over the land of Israel and then the divided kingdom in Israel and Judah. So 
thematically in, in, the, in the Word of God, that's where we're at. Somewhere around the 10th century or so, maybe about 1,000 years before Christ, the period of the judges. So it's sin, it's idolatry, it's people turning their backs on God, uh, getting involved in following false gods, serving other gods, spiritual adultery, and judgment. In fact, Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the description of the day, the description of the times. We're not going to seek what God has. We're going to do what we think is right. Does that sound familiar? It, it, it could be really a, a microcosm of even today's culture and society. We're going to do what we think is right, and we're not going to follow God. Now, what happens in the book of Judges is this. The unthinkable soon becomes the norm. I mean, you would not think to turn your back on God and to follow after fake and false gods of these surrounding uh, and neighboring countries and communities, and yet that's exactly what God's people do. That also sounds a lot like today's day and age and culture, right? The unthinkable soon becomes the norm. I mean, Years ago, maybe a handful of decades ago, you would not have imagined that the life of a little child could be murdered according to the law. But abortion has been legal for years. And in fact, it's so ingrained in culture, it's not considered really murder. It's not considered even abortion. It's just simply termed health care. It's an optional part of Healthcare. The unthinkable has become the norm. A handful of years ago, or not very long ago, you would have thought it unthinkable that a man would legally marry a man, that a woman would marry a woman, or even that a man would choose to become a woman, a woman choosing to become a man, a boy choosing to become a girl competing in girls' high school athletics. And yet the unthinkable has become the norm. That's the day and age and culture of the judges. And that's where we're seeing this is where Ruth is taking place. So in the day when the judges ruled, it says a severe famine came upon the land. Verse 1 continues, so... As a result of that famine, a man from Bethlehem. Now, we see Bethlehem, and what do we think of? Jesus. Christmas, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You left me hanging. Nobody sung it with me. We think of Christmas and little town of Bethlehem. But at this point in time, in, in God's word, Bethlehem did not have the significance David was not king. Nothing was really taking place in Bethlehem. Jesus, obviously, were, were a thousand years or so before his birth. So he's simply a man from Bethlehem in Judah. He left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Verse 1 and 2 give this great overview. In fact, it's kind of repeated for us. There's this man and he left. Verse 2, let's give you more details about the man who left. Verse 3, then Elimelech died. 
And Naomi was left with her two sons. Verse 4, the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So we're in this culture of the judges, sinfulness, everyone doing what is, is right in their own sight, and Elimelech and his family leave Bethlehem and Judah for Moab. That was a decision that would prove to be a very costly and a bad decision. Understand that our decisions determine our direction. The decisions you and I make in life determine the direction of our life. And so we're going to take a look this morning at some of the results of bad decisions. Number one, bad decisions abandon God. Or put a different way, when you and I abandon God, it leads us to making bad decisions. You see, Elimelech and his family, he took his family and he left Bethlehem and Judah for Moab. Why? Because of the famine. Now, it seems to be kind of a, a common sense, take care of your family, do something you know, for the physical health and well-being. But they left because of the famine. Now, you and I, we're, we're thankful and grateful. We don't necessarily have famines, at least here in the United States. We've got shortages um, shortage of toilet paper at times, shortage of hand sanitizer, shortage of, sometimes of bottled water. You know, when a storm is coming, you go, to the, you go to the supermarket and your preferred something is maybe not there because it's bare. We might face shortages, but we're thankful not to really face famines. But I'd venture to say you and I face difficulty. We probably face physical struggles and difficulties and financial and emotional and relational. We face difficulties, maybe not exactly as they have, but they faced a famine. You and I face struggles and difficulty, and they left. They left Bethlehem. They left the place where God was in his people, and they left for Moab. Now, they left Bethlehem. Again, it didn't necessarily have significance as far as who yet, the meaning of Bethlehem, it's interesting, it means house of bread. So they left the house of bread because there was no bread. There was a famine. Many times throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, famines took place many times as a, a time of testing or sometimes in response to sin and judgment. And so rather than trying to determine what in the world can we learn from this, the decision was, let's just leave. We're going to leave instead of learning. So they left the house of bread. They left Judah, and they went to Moab. Now, you and I, we don't think it's a, a big deal when it comes to moving. You know, people will move to a, another house in the same city, or they'll move a, a, maybe a, to another county or across the state, or people will move across country. You know, people from the north will move down south. To escape the snow or people from the south will move up north to escape the heat 
where people, you know, from the larger cities maybe leave to pursue a, a slower pace of life or maybe the, the country or rural area or, or vice versa to head to the city because of jobs and opportunities. But we don't think anything of it when it comes to moving place to place to place. But they left Bethlehem for Moab. And we think, what in the world is Moab? Let me tell you what God thinks of Moab. Psalm 60, verse 8. Read this in devotions this week. God is giving overviews of some of these different lands. And in Psalm 60, verse 8, he says, Moab is my wash basin. It's my foot pan. It's where I would place my dirty, dusty, walk-all-day kind of feet and get cleaned up. So the the wash basin, that pan, that's Moab. It's dirty, filthy, disgusting, sinful place. That's God's view of Moab. A rebellious land in opposition to God and his authority. Across the Jordan River, east, east of the promised land, maybe 30, 40, 50 miles, depending on the route that they took. And we think 30, 40, 50 miles is a piece of cake. No problem in our 4x4 or in our car or minivan or truck. For them, 30, 40, 50 miles, maybe maybe it's taking them a week or two to get there. So this is a long journey. But Moab, you hear Moab, they're leaving for Moab. Oh, Moab was named after a guy named Moab. Imagine that. But where in the world did Moab come from? you got to go back to Genesis chapter 19 to find Lot, who had an incestuous sexual relationship with his daughter. Or shall we say the daughter had the incestuous relationship with the father. They weren't married. They weren't having any children. And so they, the two daughters said, well, let's get our dad drunk, have sex with him, and have a child. The resulting child of the oldest daughter was named Moab. The younger daughter did the same thing, had a son named Ammon. Where have you heard those names before? All through the Old Testament, the Moabites and the Ammonites, thorns in the flesh of Israel, in opposition to Israel, all through the way. Going back further, more and more bad decisions led to this point. That's Moab. That's the description of how Moab formed, how it started, and what God thinks of Moab. And so facing famine, the de- desire was, let's abandon God. Let's try to, try to find a place where there's food. He did not trust in God. Now, spoiler alert, later in the book, you're going to see that they return to Israel They're going to find this man named Boaz, who's called a kinsman redeemer. We'll unpack all of that in a little bit. But doing well and being blessed of God. So even in the midst of difficulty, sometimes the challenge is, well, nothing's happening and I can't seem to make it, so I'm going to turn my back on God and I'm going to try to handle it myself. That's what Elimelech and his family were doing, abandoning God, leaving Bethlehem for Moab. The question is, He's faced with the same thing you and I are faced with. Are we going to trust God in the difficulties that we face, or are we going to handle things our own way? Now, his motives, no doubt, were legitimate. There was a famine. 
Let's go find a place with food. Legitimate motives, sincere intentions, right? He wanted to help his family just like I was wanting to help the family in my decision. Good and sincere decision, but not always taking God into account. He abandoned God, separated himself and his family from the things of God. Not that Israel was by no means perfect, but he's leaving the place of God with some of the things of God for a very wicked, evil, sinful land of God's enemies. Elimelech, interestingly enough, means God is king or my God is king. <laughs> I'm just not going to live like it. God's king, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my own decisions. My God is king. I just don't know that he can take care of us. I'm going to abandon God for Moab. You've heard the background. Moab, uh, they worshipped a God called Chemosh, involved many times human sacrifices. Their worship was filled with erotic imagery, lewd conduct. The culture of the Moabites represented everything that Israel was supposed to avoid. And yet they abandoned God for the land of Moab. See, many times... We look at Scripture and we say, boy, I can't imagine why they would do that. But sometimes we do the very same thing. When we face difficulties, when we face hardships, many times we try to handle them without consulting God. In a sense, we abandon God and we turn to try to make our own decisions. That's what Elimelech and his family did. I've heard it quoted this way. It's better to be hungry in the will of God than to have a full stomach out of his will. But unfortunately, Elimelech chose to lead his family away from God. They abandoned God. And when you and I abandon God, it leads us to make bad decisions. Secondly, bad decisions then will create consequences. Consequences. We often experience difficult and sometimes disastrous consequences when we turn our backs on and abandon God. Because here's what happens. Bad decisions lead us to more bad decisions. You've seen it. Maybe in your life, at some point in time, you told what affectionately is referred to as a little white lie. Why do we call them little? Why do we call them white? I don't know. We, we say, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It's just a little lie. But as a result of that lie, guess what happens? Many times we've got to tell another lie to cover up the first one. And then maybe tell a third one to cover up the second one. And pretty soon we've moved away from truth and moved away from truth. Little by little by little, that one lie has led to others. In many cases, bad decisions can lead to other bad decisions. He took his family, they abandoned God, they left Israel, they left Bethlehem, they went to Moab. And in that land, in that sinful land, the two sons married Moabite women. Now, we, we think, well, marriage is marriage, right? Not according to God's instructions. Deuteronomy 7 talks about this list of other nations and lands that were surrounding Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, You shall not intermarry with them, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Listen, this is not a racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. 
Spiritually, he was saying, do not marry those who are not following and serving the one true God. They're going to turn your hearts away from me. And so the individuals from these surrounding lands, they were not to marry. Sort of like the instruction of Paul, not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. A Christian should marry a Christian. Oh, but Pastor Mark, I mean, he's so cute. She's so pretty. I mean, I'll invite him to church. I'll tell him about Jesus. Listen, I, I've done this illustration multiple times over the years in youth ministry. I'd, I'd have somebody stand on the, the top of the platform and someone stand on the bottom of the platform, and I'd say, okay, reach out and hold hands. I'd say, on the count of three, here's what you're going to do. If you're on the top, your goal is to yank them up onto the platform with you. But if you're on the bottom on the count of three, your goal is to pull them off of the platform. Now let's see what happens. I mean, I've done it with, you know, a guy and a guy, a girl and a girl. doesn't matter who I've, who I've had as that illustration. Every single time, without fail, the person on the top is pulled off to the bottom. That's what takes place. It's representative of the fact it's much easier to be brought down than it is to be brought up. God recognizes this spiritually. He says, don't marry someone who does not have that same relationship with the one true God. And that's what happened. They took that step away from God's land. They abandoned him. And the next thing you know, the sons are marrying Moabite women. Bad decisions often lead to other bad decisions. Listen, you can make your decisions, but you can't choose your consequences. We say, well, I want, I want to do what I want to do. I just don't want any of the consequences of what I do. It doesn't work like that. We can make our own decisions, but we can't choose the consequences. And many times, bad decisions, when we abandon God, create incredible consequences. What we saw in the consequences, Elimelech himself died. These Two sons married Moabite women, and then the two sons died. There were consequences as the result. Now, I've heard this phrase. Chances are you've heard it. I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure that my dad at some point in time had, had mentioned it, preached it. I know I've heard multiple pastors and speakers, missionaries and evangelists. You've probably heard this. And as we're looking here at this section in the book of Ruth, I think it's very applicable it talks about sin. I would venture to say even bad decisions, but sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You probably heard that quote. It seems to be illustrated in this story, not just sin, but the effects and the consequences of our bad decisions take you further than you want to go. They left Bethlehem, Trying to find food, they end up 40, 50 miles away in Moab. They intentionally left. It wasn't accidental. They intentionally left trying to seek food rather than trusting God. But you see, our little steps away from God get us farther and farther and farther away, making it harder and harder and harder to turn back little things. And so 
Sin and our bad decisions many times take us farther than we want to go, keep us longer than you want to stay. Initially, this was not a permanent thing. It was more temporary. They're facing a shortage, a famine. Let's find some place with food. Maybe the thought was through this year or through this season or maybe through the next year we'll, we'll kind of get things, you know, I'll get back on our feet, right? You've heard that phrase. Got to get, get settled, get back on our feet, and then we'll turn back to God. In the end, Elimelech died. The sons married Moabite women. The sons died. And 10 years later, it says they settled. Verse 2, they settled there in the area. Instead of making things better, it made it worse. It's easy to obey God and say, well, I'll, just, I'll just do it this once. I can handle this once. I'll step away. I'll, I'll do my own thing. But I'll get back to God. I'll get back to attending. I'll get back to connecting with God in church or through watching or through listening or online. Or well, I'll get back to the things of God, reading and studying and praying. I'll get back. When we make the decision to kind of walk away, it's that much harder to get back. It takes you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. When they walked away and abandoned God, they probably had no thought that Elimelech would die. Both sons would die. Now Naomi is without a husband, without sons, devastated. She, she's got two daughters-in-law. Is it, is it daughters-in-law or daughter-in-laws? Whichever way it is, she's got two of them. But no husband, no sons. The decision was probably done from a good place. Let's leave famine and find food. But the end result, the, the cost was much greater than they were hoping for. It all could be traced back to one bad decision. We're going to walk away from God. Rather than trusting him through the midst of this difficulty, we're going to face it on our own. So when we abandon God, it leads us to make bad decisions. When we make bad decisions, it creates consequences. And finally, those consequences impact others. You and I might think, our decisions only affect me. It's my decision because it's only going to affect me. What do we read? Yes, Elimelech died, but the decisions created the fact that these boys married Moabite women and the two sons died. It affected the entire family more than just Elimelech trying to lead his family. Our bad decisions often affect more people than ourselves. As much as we say, hey, it's my life, I'll do what I want, our decisions affect our spouses, our children, our family, sometimes parents, our our coworkers, our bosses, those who we work for or those who work under us. I mean, there are so many interconnections. Our choices affect other people. It's not just a consequence for us personally, but for others. Malon and Kilion lost their lives. Ruth and Orpah lost their husbands. Naomi lost the husband and sons. This bad decision led to much loss of life and an incredible, difficult situation. We don't sin in a vacuum. Our choices and the circumstances affect more than us. Go 
back to the very beginning in Genesis. God created the world and God created Adam and Eve. And you think, wow, it couldn't get any better than this. Tempted of the enemy, the serpent, the snake, Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result, there's this sinful nature and proclivity that has affected many, many, many other individuals. Elimelech chose to leave the land of Israel for the land of the pagans, wickedness, idol worship. He subjected his family to the very thing he was to be protecting them from. Imagine that. Now, Naomi's husband and sons have died. She's the head of the household with two daughters-in-law. As a childish, uh, tri- uh, tongue-tied, childless widow in this foreign culture and society, is a very vulnerable class. Probably one of the most vulnerable. No one to support them. You live off the generosity of strangers. No husband, no sons, no family. She's in a desperate situation. See, here's what we know from the Word of God, this this introductory portion from the book of Ruth. When we abandon God, when we turn our backs on God, it leads us to make bad decisions, which create consequences. And many times, it's more than just consequences in our life. Our consequences then affect others. Maybe you feel a little bit like Elimelech. Maybe, maybe you feel like at times you've made some wrong decisions. You've made some bad decisions. You've turned your back on God rather than trusting in and relying upon him for the challenges and struggles and difficulties that you face. Maybe you've tried to do what I had tried to do as well, which was we're going to help God out and make our own decisions. Chances are you face some difficulties. You face some consequences as a result. Maybe, whether here in person or watching or listening online, maybe you've kind of walked away from and turned your back on God spiritually. And maybe, maybe in, in some respects today, it's as if you're facing some dangerous circumstances and results. Maybe some of those decisions or consequences have affected other people. This is... The very beginning portion of Ruth describing some bad decisions. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 helps us out with good decisions. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. In other words, good decisions start with God. Bad decisions come when we abandon God. Good decisions come when we start with God, when we base everything upon him. Our opening series of the year, Psalm 119, was all about the word of God. Are we examining and following and obeying God's word? That's going to help us in good decisions. Are we recognizing God as a priority in our life? It's going to help us with good decisions. Are we seeking godly and wise counsel from mature and godly individuals will help us in godly good decisions? Are we evaluating our options in prayer, seeking God to guide and direct? Are we waiting on him to reveal his will? Huge disparity between bad decisions and good decisions. 
When we walk away from, when we abandon God, it leads to bad decisions, disastrous consequences that affect others. Good decisions begin with God. 